0: So, it, it is so great to be able to share God's word with you again. And in the beginning of the year, I started off by sharing what it means to trust in the Lord, if you remember. That was how we started the year off trust in the Lord, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And I spoke about how 2020 had been a challenging year for us all, especially the church. And we also knew that things would get more challenging in the year to come this year. In May, I got to teach again about the persecuted Christian and what God says to us through his word and the life of Paul and how he encourages us to endure with joy through these tri- tribulations and trials that we face. So coming up to this time of being asked to teach again, and about two weeks ago, I was, I was putting Caleb to bed, and sometimes when he wants to avoid going to sleep, he sings, okay? <laughs> and he sings over and over and again. And he knows that I delight in this, because usually he's, he's quite a good singer, actually. And I usually join in with him. And on this occasion, he started singing, Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. And that was great, you know, and I was singing with him, and we were singing it over and over again. And, but this really made me think, you know, what does the Bible say about God's love for us? So I started looking into this. Well, as we know, the Bible says a lot about God's love. Um, we just heard today from Rob and recently Kevin preached about Corinthians and he talked about love in, in 1 Corinthians 13. We know from 1 John that God is love. Yeah. And over the last few weeks, I'm so thankful that Kevin was um, he gave us a glimpse of what it will be like when we get to heaven. And we will spend eternity with our Lord and Savior in that face to face love eternal but what about, that? what about until that time that our Heavenly Father dwells amongst us? What, what happens then? And today I want to talk to you about his amazing, everlasting love right here, right now on earth. And I want to share from the word of God with you from Romans 8, verse 31 down to 39. So let's read the scripture together. And it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can gather together today and we can just study your word. I do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just use me as a vessel to speak your truth and that we would worship you through your word And that we will bring honor and glory to you, Lord Jesus, as we learn of your everlasting love. I thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so so let's start in verse 31. And Paul writes, what shall we say to these things? So what things is Paul referring to here? Well, he is actually asking the question in regards to what he's actually spoken about throughout chapter 8 but particularly to verses 28 to 30. And this is what verses 28 to 30 of chapter eight says. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, confront- to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, these verses alone can be a full study of their own. And I'm not here today to debate predestination or the likes. (laughs) I personally believe that God is sovereign, and I believe in his omniscience and his omnipresence. So it makes sense to me that God, knowing all things from all time, must have chosen me first and I am his forever. I also believe that scripture will speak for itself as it always has done as we go through it. So the question Paul is answering here is, for, is who can separate us from this love, this salvation that God has predestined to us? he was anticipating that some people might think that we can be separated from God. And throughout the ages, there have always been people who have said this, that we can be separated from God and his love, that we can lose the glorious gift of salvation. So he asked four questions here of persons that we might come up with that can separate us from the love of God. The first question in verse 31, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? This is asking whether or not any human can separate us from God's love. Maybe at times we think that people come against us for our faith. And we know that this is true in this life. Maybe it is loved ones or maybe family or people who are close to us. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, verse 34 and 36, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I came to bring, but I came to bring a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And her man's enemies will be those of his own household. So we know, as many of us can attest to, that family members, loved ones, will come against us for our love of God. Some will not even believe in him themselves. And it hurts, it does, but this is just what Jesus said would happen to us. Other people that come against us in the world are... The culture, the society of today comes against us for our faith. The secular education system comes against us, what we believe in in it's truth. Many false religions come against us and what we believe in, cults. Even religion itself can come against the truth of God's word. But Paul is answering this question with the question, you see, because what it should actually translate to, instead of saying if God is for us, it should translate to, since God is for us, who can be against us? Let us turn together to Psalms 27. And I want to read here together with you what David speaks of in the, in, about man and coming against him. And, and it is actually such a beautiful psalm when you read it. So I'm reading from Psalm 27, and we're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 6. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is my strength and my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Isn't that amazing scripture there on David and his declaration of faith against what man might bring against us? The second question that we look at then is in verse 32. And you might find this strange, but, you know, obviously Paul's looking at it and it's, you know, can God himself, Separate us from his own love. And it says there, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? As John MacArthur puts it, this is a simple argument of the greater gift versus the lesser gift. Romans 5 verses 6 to 8 says, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, someone might decide to give up their life for a good or righteous person. I find that quite rare. I haven't heard much about it. You do occasionally hear about it in history. But how many of us would give up our lives for an evil person? Yet God did this through his son, Jesus, dying for us, evil sinners. Some of you know that a few years ago, my, um, my eldest son, David, was in hospital, and he was um, critical with kidney failure, and he almost died. And, and, and as a father, I felt so helpless at that time and um, I prayed and I cried before God that he would save him. I think at one point I even asked God that he would take my life in his place, you know. Because, because this is what parents do. They love their children so much that they wouldn't want any harm to come to them. But now here we have God who's given up his own son. We hear from John 3.16 that God so loved the world That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was the greatest thing God could have ever done out of love, to sacrifice his only son. When we look back and we hear the story of Jesus, who killed Jesus? Was it Judas for money? Or was it the Pharisees out of envy? Or perhaps it was Pilate out of a sense of power. No, to all of these things, it was God out of love who killed Jesus for us. Isaiah 55, verse 10 says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So if this was the greatest act of love ever, then surely it is the lesser thing that God should give us all things to attain to salvation and never be separated from his love. He cannot and will not allow those he has predestined to be separated from his love. Also note that he gives us these things freely, which in other words uh, points to his amazing grace. That's what the word freely is. It's his grace that gives us these things. John 10, verse 27 to 30 says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. So the third question then that Paul looks at here in verse 33 and you could, the beginning of verse 34 is if Satan can separate us from the love of God. It says, who shall bring a charge against God elect? Who is he who condemns? Now we know from Revelation 12 verse 10 that Satan is the accuser of the brethren who accuses us before God day and night and is Satan also who condemns us. We all know the story of Job and how Satan came before God to bring accusations against him and said that if God took away all the blessings he had given to him, then surely Job would curse God. Satan does the same thing today, bringing a charge against God's elect, trying to condemn us in our hearts, maybe by telling us that God doesn't really love us unless we have good things, such as the right job or the right house or the right spouse. Or that our sins are too great. You know, maybe he tries to condemn us with our sins and tells us in our hearts, you can't ever be close to God. Your sins are too much. Romans 4, verse 10 and 11 says, and it is actually quoting from Psalm 14. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. So are we doomed? No. For thank God that he says in Romans 5, as we read earlier, and Pat, I know you will love this, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And this is the exact answer that Paul gives to this question about Satan in verse 33. He says, It is God who justifies. God alone justifies us. There is no higher court in the universe. We are who God's elect, as seen in verse 29 to 30 of this chapter, have been justified, and those he justified, these he also glorified. The fourth question to whom might separate us from God's love is in verse 34. And again, you know, it says there basically, it's asking the question, will Christ himself condemn us? Because it says, who is he who condemns us, right? And then it goes on to talk about it is Christ, right? And um, it is Christ who died. Now here, when we look at this, there are four realities or reasons why believers can never be found guilty. Firstly, it said, it is Christ who died for us. His death was received by God the Father as full punishment for our sins. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Or as Romans 6 verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Secondly, it says, And furthermore is also risen. The price that Jesus paid on the cross fully satisfied God so much so that he resurrected him from the dead Romans 4 verse 23 to 25 says now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification So because God was satisfied with the price Jesus paid and raised him from the dead. Thirdly, it says, who is even at the right hand of God. Our eternal salvation has been fully accomplished because of this. As Colossians 3 verse 1 says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Or let us look at Hebrews 1 verse 3 who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wow, that is such a beautiful verse describing Christ at God's right hand because of what he's done on the cross. Now, if these three realities or reasons were not enough, for us to see that Jesus has no desire whatsoever to condemn us, then Paul adds a further amazing reality, who also makes intercession for us. So not only did Jesus die for us as full payment for our sins, he was then raised from the dead to show that the Father has, was fully satisfied with him. He also now sits at the right hand of God, fully accomplishing our salvation, but he is also our high priest in heaven, interceding for us always to ensure that we are never separated from his love and grace. Hebrews 7 verse 25 and 26 says, therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than than the heavens so here we've looked at four persons who might some might argue might separate us from God's love other humans in the world God the Father himself Satan the accuser and even Jesus our Lord but some might ask or say well what about me myself surely I can break the seal or lose my salvation let's look at what Ephesians 1 verse 13 and 14 says to this In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory? I think that pretty much covers us to say that we can't be separated. Some of you might say, well, what about those who I've known who were in the church and maybe fell away? Maybe they turned their back on God or even cursed him and have just never come back to God again. What about those? I think 1 John 2 verse 19 answers that question. It says, they went out from us, but were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Some of you have have heard my own personal testimony of how I came to know Jesus while I was um, attending a children's reformatory slash prison in South Africa. And when I came to salvation, I attended a church after that. And it was a church that was not beneficial to my growth. And in fact, they hindered my walk to the point that I felt so hurt that I actually abandoned the church and I walked in the wilderness from my Lord. Did this separate me from his love? No, not at all. I remember, as I was fulfilling the lust of my flesh, that I was being continually convicted by the Holy Spirit to the point that after many years of pain within my own heart, finally one evening, after going out and getting drunk and high, sorry, I'm ashamed of this, it's the truth. I came home, and whilst flicking through the TV on one of the God channels, a, a, a whole an old hymn came up that I remember from church when I was young. And I fell on my knees and wept before God. And he sobered me up, and I spent the whole evening in repentance, of tears of repentance. And I sit there to this day, and I think, why did that happen? Because I am God's elect, whom he predestined whom he justified, whom he has glorified, never to be separated from the love of God. So we've looked at possible persons who might separate us from the love of God, and we've seen so far that there aren't none. The next few verses that we look at, they look at circumstances that might be able to separate us from the love of God. In verse 35, it says, "'Who shall separate us from the love of Christ?' But then it goes on to list a set of things or circumstances that might hinder us. The reason here for this is that Paul is saying behind every circumstances or thing is usually a person that creates those circumstances. So he starts off by saying who can separate us, but then he lists these things. And there's seven things mentioned here by Paul. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. Now, when we look at these circumstances, I think we need to see that Paul is taking them to the extreme and talking about worst case scenarios in life. But, however, as much as these were worst case scenarios, they were quite real to Paul. If we can turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 11, and I want to read about those things that uh, affected Paul. I'm going to be reading from verse 22 down to verse 28. And it says this, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they, the, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. So I think that covers most of the things we've mentioned in the list that Paul went through. He definitely experienced a lot of perils. (laughs) That was a major thing in his life, wasn't it? We see that Paul did go through everything. It Except at this stage, the sword, but we know from later on in life, Paul did experience the sword. He was a martyr, he had his head chopped off, so he did face that too. I find it quite interesting, though, when you look at the list of things mentioned here, one of them is distress, which while tribulation means to be squeezed or pressed from the outside, so that's what tribulation (coughs) means that we could, you know, all those circumstances around us being pressed by people and things that. Distressed actually means the opposite. It means to be pressed in inside from the inside. So it's like being squeezed in it. And these are the sort of things that would cause us anguish or fear or doubt inside us. yeah. But now when we read about Paul, we don't hear much about him fearing or doubting God. You know? But yet, if you go back to that scripture that we just read, and you just look at verse 28, it says this. It says, Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily My deep concern for all the churches. This was his distress. Because of his love for others, his distress was caused by his love for the church and everybody around him because he'd actually experienced God so much. yeah. We hear this of Paul all the time. In Romans 9, he was willing to be a curse from Christ so that his brethren could be saved. He knew that was an impossibility. But it just shows how deep his love was for others because he had experienced this love from God. So when we look at all these extreme circumstances that might separate us from God, with the ultimate one being death itself, what does Paul say? Well, before I give that answer, I do want to mention verse 36 there, and which is a quote from Psalm 44, verse 22. I think Paul mentions this to show that until Christ returns, that as Christians, we shall be put to death as Christians. We shall be put to death for our faith. We know that this is happening today in parts of the world. We don't experience it so much here, but around the world, Christians are being put to death like sheep to the slaughter. And that will continue to happen until it's second coming. So how should we respond to all of these circumstances? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verse 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. What does that phrase mean? The Greek word here or the Greek phrase for this is hooper Nikeo, which basically means hyper or super conqueror. Interestingly, Nike comes from the Greek word of that. Phrase, comes from the word conqueror you know, the sports brand Nike. As many of you know, I'm a football fan. And my team has been doing well, let's say, not too great lately. I'm not going to mention who they are. Some of you will know. But in midweek, they played in Europe and had to wait to the very last minute of the game to conquer their opponents. Let me tell you, though, they were definitely not more than conquerors. Imagine if they'd gone into that match knowing that they'd already won before they even started because somebody had said, here, I've given you the victory. Just go and play. You're you're more than a conqueror. You've won already. Wouldn't that be amazing? This is exactly what Paul is saying here, though, to us. Through him who loved us, him being God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have the victory already. None of these extreme circumstances or even the lesser circumstances in life that you might think of can ever separate us from the love of God. Finally, verses 38 and 39, very popular verses, bring a lot of comfort and edification to many believers. He starts off by saying that he is persuaded. This word also translates as to being convinced, to trust, to believe. So that's what Paul said. He said, I am convinced, I trust, I believe in what I'm about to say. Okay. now, Paul mentions 10 things here which cannot separate us from the love of God. They're actually in some groups as well when we look at them. Interestingly, he starts with life and death, probably due to the fact that that is what he ended verse 35 and 36 on about the sword and being killed all day. So he starts with, I'm convinced that neither life nor death can separate us from God's love. I was reading an article the other day, and it was entitled, Does God Love Me? And it was interesting. It focuses on the story in John 11 on the death of Lazarus. And in verse 3 of John 11, we hear that Mary and Martha were sent to him. They sent him saying, Lord, behold, him who you love is sick. What is Jesus' response in verse 4 when he heard? He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In verse five, we hear that Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So what did he do? Did he rush and heal Lazarus? No, he waited two more days in the place where he was. And we know from the story that Lazarus died. But we also know that it was for God's glory and it was ultimately not unto death, but unto life. Now, I love the way John Piper puts it. He says, my definition of love of God based on this text in, in John 11 is this God's love is his doing whatever needs to be done at whatever cost so that we will see and be satisfied with the glory of God in Jesus Christ forever and ever I think that's an amazing description there so we can see that neither life nor death can separate us from the love of God Paul actually says in Philippians 1 verse 20 for to me to live is Christ And to die is gain. Next, we look at angels, principalities, and powers. Paul is saying here that no angelic, demonic, or any other heavenly power can separate us from God's love. We have already looked at why Satan has no powers over us earlier. We looked at Job. Peter was also given over to Satan for sifting. And we know that he came through this. Paul himself, in 2 Corinthians 12, was sent a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. However, God responded to Paul's request for removal of this by saying in verse 9, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. The next group of things mentioned is things present or things to come. So basically, whatever is happening right now in our lives or even on a a larger scale, the world around us, or even events that are still to come that will happen until he returns, these things cannot separate us from his love. This includes viruses, lockdowns, vaccines, persecution from society because we stand on God's word. The reason I say this, a few months ago, I heard something quite disturbing from, from a few Christians. I must say, not in this church, though, I promise you, okay? And they said that if you take the vaccine, you will lose your salvation. How can this be? Surely, after reading all these verses and seeing how much God loves us, he would, net, he would let nothing separate us from this love. Not even that. So that statement is impossible. Future events too. They cannot separate us from God's love. We see the world around us. We see things are not usually getting better. We've heard Kevin talking about the LGBTQ thing in Wales and and the the problems they have in there. All these things are going to come against us. This will not separate us from God's love. Paul then mentions the next group, nor height, nor depth, These are basic astronomy terms referring to the highest and the lowest point of a star's path. So Paul is probably describing here all of space from top to bottom, the whole universe. Nothing in the universe can separate us from God's love. Finally, after all these things mentioned, I myself cannot think of anything else that could separate me from the love of God. But just in case you can, Paul has covered that by saying, nor any other created thing. I think it is fair to say that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what should we do with this love that God has given to us freely through his grace? Firstly, we are to love God. One John talks so much of God's love for us and our love for him and others. In chapter four, verse 19, it says, we love him because he loved us. And because he loves us, We should trust the Lord with all our hearts. I had to get the scripture in, Rob. (laughs) (laughs) Secondly, we are to love others. Again, 1 John 4 verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And Romans 3 verse 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. So we know that God's elect can never be separated from his love. And because of his love, we are to walk in the spirit and love him. And we are to love others no matter what the cost. Jesus himself said in John 13, verse 35, By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. To close, I would like to read the first question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a Protestant confessional document from 1563. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for your word. And and Lord, I just, Father, I thank you that through your word, you have shown us how much you love us. You have given us that eternal salvation that will never we can never be separated from you father for those you have chosen for those who love you and we thank you lord that you are sovereign and that you are in control of everything in our lives we pray lord that through knowing this love from you that we too would just love others we would serve others and we would just show the world your love by the love that we have for one another I thank you for these things in Jesus' mighty name, that your love is forever. Amen. Amen.